millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alina is, uh, she's fangirling again today. She's literally bouncing up and down in Poland. Alina, who have you brought on today? So today we're heading back towards the Cold War and we have joining us Sergei Rachenko, who is a professor of international relations at Cardiff University. His research is in Sino-Soviet Japanese relations. He has also published some incredible books like Two Sons in the Heavens and Unwanted Visionaries, The Soviet Failure in Asia at the End of the Cold War. Today we'll be talking about the relationship between China and the Soviet Union spanning from 1945 to 1991. So welcome. Ah, thanks for having me here. Oh, so are you in Cardiff? How is Cardiff on lockdown? So, uh, you know, my window to the world are books or a computer, and I don't, I don't really, I don't, I don't seem to get too much concern, concerned with what's going outside the front door. Yeah, this is a, a reoccurring theme amongst our guests is the idea that we are all in fact just losers anyway who don't leave the house um, <laughs> and that we're already well primed to deal with it. But let's I'm, talk about I'm your I'm sociopath, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. I'm going to, let's talk about your research then and not your sociopathic tendencies in case we scare our listeners. I'm Alina. really actually, yeah, I'm really well, excited. I know so, you're so excited. <laughs> so let's give our listeners a little bit of background history. In 1945, the Second World War was finished. What was the situation in China and Soviet Russia at the time? Well, their relationship in 1945 was strained, I think. This, this is a fair way of putting this. Uh, Stalin had uh, pursued a fairly hostile policy towards China in the sense that he was he was seeking to establish uh, a, a string of buffer states along 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 the Soviet Asian periphery uh, and in 1945 or in fact in, already in 1944 for example he was sponsoring an ethnic rebellion in in China's northwest in Xinjiang he of course uh, maintained um, um, control over Mongolia, uh, which China felt was a part of a part a part of the Republic of China, but you know the Soviets recognized as an independent country. Uh, and he supported the Chinese Communist Party, which was at that time holed up in the mountains on the hills of Yan'an, um, and which would uh, eventually end up in a, in a state of a civil war with uh, the Kuomintang. Uh, with the national Chinese government. So because of that, there were tensions. There were tensions uh, in the relationship between uh, Chongqing, which was the wartime capital of China, and uh, Moscow. Now, uh, what happened then in 1945 was there was the Yalta Conference in, um, uh, in February 1945, a uh, uh, wartime summit between Churchill, Stalin, and Roosevelt. And at that, um, at that summit in Crimea, Roosevelt effectively recognized that Stalin would have some post-war gains in Asia, and some of those gains were made at China's expense. Now, Chiang Kai-shek, the leader of China, was not informed about those things, but Stalin would gain certain gains in, in Manjuria, including a military base. He would uh, uh, get a official approval, as it were, on the part of China of Mongolia's independence. 
those were very important gains for Stalin. They were recognized by the Americans. And then in the summer of 1945, a treaty of alliance was signed between China and, um, and, and the Soviet Union, at that time Guomindang, China. It was, um, it was a kind of, you know, it was a treaty of alliance in name, but of course it was extremely difficult for Chiang Kai-shek to sign on to this treaty. And he only did that after considerable pressure from Stalin uh, and also because the Americans recognized this within the Yalta framework. But basically, he recognized Mongolia's independence and he recognized Stalin's gains in Manchuria. Was it difficult for him? Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, I would say the relationship between the two major countries uh, was, uh, was tense. So what then happens between 1945 and 1949? So here's what happened. So basically, Stalin had different ideas. You know, Stalin's ideas for Asia were fluid. They were subject to change, changing circumstances. He was very adaptable. At one point, for example, he was supporting the uh, insurrection in Xinjiang, which was directed against the, the central Chinese government. And then in 1945, he actually ended his support for this insurrection and endorsed Chinese control over Xinjiang. Why did he do that? That was a kind of a trade-off in this Treaty of Alliance that he signed with, with Chiang Kai-shek in 1945. So uh, Chiang Kai-shek gave him certain gains in Manchuria and also recognized Mongolia's independence in China. And, and as a, in, in response, uh, Stalin was, was willing to uh, uh, basically pull the plug on that independence movement in Xinjiang. He also seemingly, although not entirely, uh, was willing to pull the plug on, on his support of the Chinese communists. Now you would think, well, the Chinese communists were ideological allies of, of the USSR. Why then in 1945 did Stalin promise to Chiang Kai-shek that he would not support the Chinese communists? Again, you can see Stalin for the opportunist that he was. Uh, the Sino-Soviet Treaty of Alliance recognized Soviet interest in China, and that that treaty also had sort of you know, American backing through the Yalta framework. Therefore, um, uh, Stalin was willing to sacrifice ideal, ideological allies, the Chinese communists. And in fact, in August 1945, he even forced Mao, Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao Zedong, the Chinese Communist Party, to go to Chongqing to negotiate a truce uh, with the national government of China, with Chiang Kai-shek. Now, that came to nothing. So basically, Stalin was willing to sell out his ideological allies for the sake of Soviet quasi-imperialist interest in China. However, what happened later was, of course, the Cold War broke out in Europe, and that logic of the Cold War eventually forced Stalin to put all of his eggs in one basket. That's because a civil war broke out in China and the Chinese communists unexpectedly started to win in that war. Stalin never expected them to win. I mean, they were, they, uh, on paper, of course, Chiang Kai-shek was, seemed to, uh, to be the leader of China, you know, one of the, uh, one of the great post-war leaders with uh, all those forces at his disposal. And yet, uh, his, his forces started to lose in the civil war against the Chinese communists. So in the end, by approximately, I would say, 1947, Stalin started to um, support the Chinese communists more and more and eventually put all of his eggs into that basket, although not without considerable prodding uh, from Chairman Mao Zedong, who, um, as we know, came to Moscow in 1949, he had asked Stalin, he had asked Stalin since 1947, uh, Comrade Stalin, can I come to Moscow? We need to, we need to sign a new treaty of alliance. We, I, you know, we, the Chinese communists, want to be aligned with the Soviet Union. And Stalin would rebuff him time and again. He just didn't want to put all his trust in Mao. And he wasn't sure about how this, the, the civil war would eventually uh, pan out. So he rebuffed Mao. In the end, in 1949, Mao came to Moscow, had held talks with Stalin, and Stalin ultimately agreed to sign a new treaty of alliance with communist China. But it was, you know, it was in, in, in a way, it was a result of the uh, increasing uh, polarization of the world as a result of the Cold War breaking out in Europe. Now it moved to it moved to Asia in 1949. Mao Zedong proclaimed that China, that communist China itself, would have to choose sides in the Cold War and, as he put it, lean on the side of the Soviet Union. And by 1949, Stalin was willing to recognize this and embrace 
uh, Mao Zedong as a fellow communist leader, although I should say he never trusted Mao. That was going to bring me on to the next question, actually, because we're speaking about 1949, we're speaking about uh, the People's Republic of China because that's when it was formed. And you just mentioned that Stalin didn't trust Mao, but is there anything else we can talk about the relationship? I mean, did it go in a positive way or how did that work? Well, the one and only meeting between Mao and Stalin took place, or a series of meetings took place when Mao Zedong showed up in Moscow in December 1949 and stayed. He stayed until um, uh, February 1950 when the uh, Sino-Soviet Treaty of Alliance was signed on February 14th, 1950. Um, Stalin, as Mao later said, you know, he never had a good feeling about Stalin. I think Stalin fully shared that suspicion. Stalin... Um, never tried, Khrushchev recalled, never trusted anyone, did not even trust himself. How could he trust Mao? You see, Stalin uh, did not really control Mao in the way that he controlled some of the communists of um, the Eastern European puppet states that the Soviets installed following their, uh, uh, the, the end of the Second World War. With China, it was different. Of course, Mao had a long association with the Comintern and had long been in contact with the USSR, uh, but in the, uh, at different points in his career, uh, Mao felt a sense of resentment against not having you know, enough support from the Soviets. He felt the Soviets were supporting his rivals in leadership, people like Wang Ming, for example. But by 1949, really, you know, Mao was the leader of communist China, and, and, and so Stalin had to deal with him. He had to accept Mao effectively. And we have to remember also there's one nuance here to explain, I think, in part why Stalin is so resentful of Mao or so suspicious of Mao. And that is, remember what happened in Soviet-Yugoslav relations in the late 1940s, where Tito was a, a you know, popular communist leader um, and, and it's simulated first, had a very good relationship with Stalin. But then by 1947-48, you have a development of frictions and ultimately, obviously, the Soviet-Yugoslav split. Uh, and Tito was demonized by the Soviets. Well, uh, Mao felt that Stalin treated him as, a, as if he was a potential Tito or a half-Tito, as it were. So when Mao came to Moscow in December 1949, he, um, he encountered a degree of uh, coldness from Stalin, but also unwillingness at first uh, on the part of Stalin to sign a new treaty of alliance with the People's Republic of China. And that's actually a crucial moment, and historians never quite figured out why Stalin later changed his mind and ultimately agreed to sign a new treaty. You, you see, the old treaty of 1945, which I alluded to earlier, uh, with Chiang Kai-shek, guaranteed Soviet interests in China. The Soviets had an, a, a naval base at, in Port Arthur. Uh, the Soviets had... Um, you know, Mongolia was, was made independent, etc. There were the important gains. And also, it was a part of the Yalta framework, which had American blessing, despite the fact that we're pretty far now into the Cold War. But Stalin still valued this notion of American recognition, the legitimacy that he derived from American recognition from the Yalta framework. So now Mao comes to Moscow in, um, in December 1949 and tells Stalin, can we sign a new treaty? Can we just get rid of that old treaty you had with Chiang Kai-shek? And can we sign a new treaty? And Stalin says, no, we can't do that because this would undermine the Yalta system. Uh, and then a few, a couple of weeks later, I mean, actually Stalin sent Mao away to one of his dachas and did not see him for days on end. Mao was really frustrated about it and, and, and aired his frustrations to various lieutenants of Stalin whom Stalin sent to check up on Mao. So he would, he would say things like, oh, I came here to Moscow. I have nothing but to... Uh, uh, to sleep and uh, nothing, nothing to do but to eat, to sleep, and to shit, as it were. You know, so basically being very angry uh, with Stalin, and at, the, at one point also threatened his threatened to Stalin that China had uh, you know, sensibly other options that perhaps the the British would recognize China or the Indians would recognize China, and so that relationship with the USSR perhaps not was not not so important. So in the end, maybe this kind of blackmail helped change Stalin, Stalin's mind. We don't really know, but one way or another, by early January 1950, Stalin decided to give Mao Zedong a new treaty of alliance, which of course paved way then to this, uh, the, you know, the whole period of friendship between the Soviet Union and China, the Sino-Soviet um, uh, Sino Treaty of Alliance. 
And um, so what does the Korean War in 1950, that starts, how does that affect the relationship between China and Soviet Russia? Well, the Korean War was an interesting case. You see, Mao was actually in Moscow at the time when Stalin made his decision to back Kim Il-sung in the Korean War. That is to say, Kim Il-sung had asked, had begged uh, Stalin for ages and ages. He had long asked Stalin, to comrade Stalin, can we reunify Korea? Can we reunify Korea? Stalin's response was consistent. No, you cannot do that because that risks, um, risks American intervention. You cannot do this. And then in January of 1950, just as Mao Zedong was in Moscow, Stalin actually, you know, Kim Il-sung again asks him about it through uh, Soviet the representative in Pyongyang, a guy named Shtikov. So he uh, sent Stalin another request regarding um, uh, regarding a possible invasion of South Korea. And this time Stalin says, "Yeah, we can we can actually consider this. We can we can do this." Which raises the question: Then was that a part of a some kind of you know coordination with with China? The answer is no. Actually, this never came up in the discussions between between Stalin and Mao. So uh, so it's it's interesting. It's interesting to 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 untangle this and to figure out why is it exactly that Stalin gave his blessing to Kim Il Sung just as Mao was in Moscow, just as he was signing a treaty of alliance with Mao. Perhaps he thought that now now that um, I mean at that time Dean Acheson. American Secretary of, of, of State famously announced that America would not extend its defensive perimeter to cover, um, uh, to cover Korea. Maybe that was the reason that Stalin made this decision. But also, perhaps there was this um, thinking on his part that if Korean War goes the wrong way, or if, for example, you know, the Korean, North Koreans start losing, perhaps the Chinese could get involved and help out. Stalin himself did not want to get involved in the Korean War, as we know later when it broke out. Uh, the Chinese did get involved uh, by the end of 1950, send, sending their troops across the Yellow River. But uh, Stalin wasn't willing to do that, although he did provide some air support eventually. Um, what was the net effect of this of, of the Korean War on the Sino-Soviet relationship? I would say there's one important factor here. I think for Mao Zedong, the Korean War allowed him to stand tall and proud next to Stalin, because it was China that was fighting the American imperialists in Korea. It wasn't the Soviet Union. You see, the Soviet Union encouraged Chinese participation, but wasn't willing to actually get involved in, this, in the fighting, whereas China was actually sacrificing, sacrificing is, 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 is making the sacrifice of, of blood and um, material in, in Korea, and that made Mao feel like he was a worthy, you know, an equal to Stalin, so to speak. Well, Stalin then dies in 1953. <clears throat> this must have had some sort of effect on the relationship because Khrushchev takes over the Soviet Union and then he begins to attack Stalin and Mao doesn't actually like that very much, does he? Well, exactly. See, you know, Stalin's death is an interesting moment and it's really a turning point in the Sino-Soviet relationship. My Thinking about this is, is the following, um, and, and this is based on close reading of Chinese materials. I, uh, you almost sense like Mao felt that Stalin was the father of the socialist commonwealth, you know, this, the socialist world, and, and China was the eldest brother. It's almost like he applied certain Confucius thinking, and Mao was notably anti-Confucian, but uh, you can almost see some Confucian ideas about, about uh, um, uh, filial piety that, 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 that uh, Mao you know, felt towards Stalin. He did not like Stalin, but he felt like he had to recognize Stalin, that Stalin was the most important, you know, the father, as it were, in that socialist family. Uh, but now that the father died in March 1953, the question is, well, who is now the leader of the socialist world? And Nikita Khrushchev comes forward, not immediately, but eventually becomes the Soviet leader. Uh, he did not have a lot uh, of, uh, you know, a, 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 not so many, you know, he did not have the credentials to be the socialist uh, uh, the, the leader of the socialist commonwealth. Uh, Mao had been, you know, had led a whole country to revolutionary victory. He saw himself as a philosopher, as a Marxist uh, theoretician. Khrushchev had none of that, uh, none of those achievements, as it were, under his belt. So what then, how could he even contend 
How could he even pretend like that, that, that he was the leader? Now, of course, Mao was realistic in the sense that he recognized that China was backward, China was still very poor. It was the Soviet Union that had the Socialist Revolution in 1917 that defeated Nazi Germany. That in 1957 launched Sputnik into space. So therefore, the Soviet Union had the material capabilities to be the leader of the Socialist Commonwealth. But Mao felt that it was he who was so much more deserving of the of, of, of the leader, of the title of the leader. Now, uh, somebody, you know, somebody who, was, who is familiar with this material, somewhat familiar uh, with, with the materials on the Sino-Soviet split, might say, well, that's not exactly the case, because in, in November 1957, Mao Zedong turned up in Moscow, and he actually publicly proclaimed that the Soviet Union was the leader of the socialist commonwealth, and indeed, uh, the socialist world could not have two leaders. It's like having a snake with two heads. But by doing that, I would argue, Mao actually put himself in the position of a kingmaker. He recognized Khrushchev. He said, yeah, okay, you can be the leader, but I am in the position to recognize you as the leader and you rely on my recognition. So this is very important. So really there was, there was a kind of a, uh, early tension between Khrushchev and Mao. Um, and, and, and the problem, the fundamental problem was that as I argued in one of my uh, in early books, you know, you cannot have two suns in the heavens. You cannot have two kings on earth. The socialist world had to have one person who was in charge. And when China, uh, post-Stalin's death, projected leadership, uh, that was a big part of the, of the, the beginning, as it were, of the problem. Or for the Soviet. A lot happened in the 1950s. The Great Leap Forward, the Korean War, the Great Famine, the Five-Year Plan, um, which when we get to the 1960s, we start to see the relationship fracturing between the two nations. How do we get to that point? Well, there are lots of issues here, and historians have looked at it from different angles. Some would say this is ideological in part. You mentioned uh, Khrushchev's criticism of Stalin at the um, 20th Party Congress in February 1956, and some historians would say, well, this is the starting point for the Sino-Soviet split. Why? Because uh, there was an ideological divergence between uh, Mao, who was a, a Stalinist of a kind, and Khrushchev, who was now trying to overthrow Stalin. It is true that Mao was deeply critical of Khrushchev's uh, anti-Stalinist uh, moves. He felt, as he, called, as he told Khrushchev, uh, that Stalin was um, a sword, and now you've discarded the sword, the imperialists will take the sword and kill us. Or, as he also would put it, uh, Stalin was a big rock and you've raised the rock to drop it on your own feet. So um, and then, of course, you had the events in Poland and Hungary in, in um, uh, 1956, which again confirmed to Mao that Khrushchev's criticism of Stalin had been all wrong uh, and that, that it just led to chaos in the socialist camp. So you can, you can see a kind of ideological divergence here. I would not make too much of this. And that's, I think, that, and in part, this connects to my own background. You see, I'm Russian. And Russians are notably cynical. In fact, you know, as a historian, you know, if I look back, I have to look back on my own past and try to understand where my positions come from. I, I matured politically in Russia of the 1990s when ideology became very devalued and nobody really, you know, no, and people became so cynical overnight practically. And I think that may have affected my approach to the things that I deal with, including the story of the Sino-Soviet relationship. So in my work, I, I, tended, to, I have tended to, un, un, uh, I guess, um, underplay the role of ideology and focus instead on um, personality conflicts or on you know, national interests or on um, the, the struggle for leadership, for example. Those are themes that are dear to me, as it were. I just wanted to draw your attention to one particularly interesting episode that happened in July 1958, which I think is a turning point. It's not a turning point, but certainly it's a really important indication of the problems that existed in the Sino-Soviet relationship. This was at the time when, uh, when Khrushchev proposed to have a joint navy between the Soviet Union in China. I mean, there were allies. Why not have a joint navy? Khrushchev had all kinds of interesting ideas. Uh, interesting in quotation marks. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah. So he he brings us he brings this out, and um, and and uh, the Soviet ambassador delivers this new, this news to the Chinese, and Mao calls in the Soviet ambassador Pavel Yudin, um, and uh, uh, just launches into this rant. Um, against uh, the Soviet Union. He says, you know, you Russians, you always look down on China. You think we're stupid. You think we're dumb. You think we're backward. And so now you come up with this proposal for joint uh, Navy. Why don't you just make a proposal to completely take over a Chinese coastline or, you know, to take all over Chinese ministry? So he interpreted this, interpreted this proposal from a very nationalistic kind of perspective as an effort of, on the part of the Soviet Union to impose a imperialist control or imperial control of China. And, uh, you know, Khrushchev was deeply disturbed by that and had to fly to China and then um, uh, blame everything in the ambassador. So the ambassador misunderstood his instructions and Mao said, oh, okay, okay, we're fine now. The black clouds have dispersed, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but in the end, this left a really bitter feeling for both the Chinese and the Soviets. And I would say that this there, this is an important in, a turning point because it shows Mao's deep concern about feeling unequal, about, about being placed in an inferior position or being locked in some kind of hierarchy where he is uh, the underdog. He could not be putting up with this. He, did, he was not willing to have this kind of alliance where China was the younger, perpetual younger brother. He wasn't willing to put up with this. So in my view, at least, uh, this unwillingness is, is the source of the Sino-Soviet split, which, of course, happened already from the late 1950s and into the 1960s. Relations deteriorated very sharply in the 1960s, indeed from 1959 onwards. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I think we should mix it up a little bit because I love this next question. Um, it's something I did a little bit of work on at university and... Um, I thought we'd, we'd give a bit of a challenge and let our listeners listen to your answer. So do you believe that the main cause of the Sino-Soviet split was personality problem between Khrushchev and Mao? Uh, personality certainly made it worse. Mao was a, a very, uh, you know, the Chinese have this, this, this term, you know, the feeling of self-importance. He felt he was a revolutionary leader. And who was Khrushchev? Khrushchev was a clown in Stalin's entourage. You know, he could, just could not measure up to the same kind of greatness. So I, I, I feel that there, there, there definitely was this element um, on the part of certainly this feeling towards Khrushchev and Mao's part. And Khrushchev's part, he felt like he was the leader of a superpower. And who were the Chinese? You know, who were the Chinese? He, 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 he was, like many Russians of that generation, looked on China and, you know, he looked on China as a backward country and was not willing to see it for the kind of great power that Mao, that Mao claimed that it was. So I think there was clearly an important factor, this personality conflict. But let's say Mao dropped dead in 1958 or 1956. Would you be able then to avoid the Sino-Soviet split. Of course, historians are very bad at counterfactuals and in counterfactuals are not necessarily useful because we cannot take in, you know, we cannot make this kind of speculations without, um, you know, we cannot just, you know, we cannot just change the past, right? But one thing that, that, 
comes to mind here is that the very structure of the Sino-Soviet relationship was unequal and this views about the inequality of the relationship were shared widely in the Chinese elites. Uh, Mao Zedong was unhappy about it, but was Liu Shaoqi happy? No, I don't think Liu Shaoqi was happy about it. Deng Xiaoping, who eventually succeeded Mao, uh, was he happy? Um, of course he was not happy. Mao sent him to Moscow in 1963, and he had the very nasty discussions with the Soviets in which he uh, accused them of, being the, of, of trying to play the Tsars and the gods of the communist movement. So I think this resentment of inequality uh, among the Chinese political elite went much deeper than Mao Zedong himself. And although perhaps the split would not have taken the kind of sharp turn, uh, the kind of sharp um, nature that it eventually did, perhaps it would still have taken place. <clears throat> so the conflict just gets worse, doesn't it? Especially during the Cultural Revolution. Could you give our listeners a brief outline of what happens here? So yes, the 1960s were a difficult time for Sino-Soviet relations, or indeed for China's foreign policy uh, in general. From 1966, China launches into Cultural Revolution, which was extremely xenophobic, um, and the Soviet Union became a target of the Cultural Revolution, or uh, because because Mao was concerned of that there was some kind of a connection between the Soviet leaders and his domestic political opponents, people like Liu Shaoqi, whom he called China's Khrushchev. Um, uh, I mean, the uh, Sino-Soviet relations were already pretty bad by then. I would say uh, there was an interesting moment in 1964 where, where both the Soviets and the Chinese uh, were, were trying to repair the relationship. And that's, that's when Khrushchev fell from power. Now, that actually goes back to your previous question, what would have happened you know, if, if, it wasn't, if it weren't for Mao and Khrushchev? Well, Khrushchev fell from power in October 1964. The Chinese sent a delegation to Moscow to try to repair the relationship. Uh, the story of this delegation is actually extremely interesting because the delegation, um, there was a, uh, it was the time of the Soviet uh, revolutionary holiday uh, you know, the November uh, anniversary of the revolution. Uh, and uh, there was a reception at the Kremlin and um, uh, Soviet Minister of Defense Radion Malinovsky made a toast uh, that was very anti-imperialist in nature. The Chinese delegation from Beijing uh, were there and the leader of the Chinese delegation came up to Radion Malinovsky to congratulate him on the fabulous anti-imperialist toast that he made. And then Malinovsky, apparently quite drunk in this stage, told uh, uh, the uh, Holong, Marshal Holong, who was his you know, opposite side, uh, that uh, if only the Chinese got rid of Mao Zedong, just like the Soviets threw out that old Chu Khrushchev, then the two countries would get fine, and would get along fine. So for the rest of the time that the Chinese delegation spent in Moscow, there was... The, you know, they, they, the Soviets were trying to persuade them that Malinovsky did not mean what he said, that he was just drunk, and the Chinese would say, oh, no, but that just means that he really thought that, and, and, and so that came to nothing. So this, this was the last moment, I suppose, to, uh, to avert the slide towards confrontation. And then by 1965-66, just as the Cultural Revolution breaks out in China, the relationship was already extremely tense. Uh, it became so tense that in 1967, the Soviet embassy in Beijing came under siege. And there was uh, a moment where it seemed like the Red Guards, the youthful revolutionary leaders um, who claimed that they were carrying out you know, Mao Zedong's revolution, uh, converged on the embassy and were about to take it over, to, to storm it, and were apparently talked out of this at the last moment by Prime Minister Joan Lai who felt that this would probably be a, um, uh, what's the way to put it, uh, that this would uh, uh, undermine the diplomatic relationship with the Soviet Union if they lynched the Soviet diplomats. So that was averted. But generally speaking, you know, China's relationship, not just with the Soviet Union, but with the entire world was extremely tense in the late 1960s as it descended into chaos of the Cultural Revo Revolution. And indeed, China withdrew most of its ambassadors from overseas and turned onto itself. So all this tension ends up escalating into actual physical conflict at one point, doesn't it? What happens? 
So this happened in March 1969. This was already past the high point of the Cultural Revolution, but of course the Soviets are still seen as a major enemy. Uh, there is a major uh, Soviet force in the north, along the northern border of China and in Mongolia. Um, you know, the Soviets, of course, were afraid of Chinese invasion, looking at what's happening in the embassy, around the, their embassy in Beijing. They felt that, they, that China had gone completely xenophobic and crazy and might just invade the Soviet Union. So they were very concerned about that, and they were building up forces. But then from the Chinese perspective, that built up of forces uh, seemed very threatening. We have a, a clear uh, example of, the, of, of what um, IR scholars call security dilemma. So the Soviets were building up forces because they felt the Chinese were threatening, and the Chinese saw that built up of forces as threatening its own right. And of course, remember what happened then in 1968, the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia to impose their own preferred version of socialism on, the, uh, uh, on, on that socialist ally and to crush the Prague Spring. Well, the Chinese were not supporters of the Prague Spring, but they certainly resented the, the possibility the Soviets might invade and impose their own preferred version of socialism on China as well. So then what happened, I think, is the Chinese resorted to what they, in, in the Chinese strategic thought, is called... Um, it's, it's, it, there's a special term for it. Um, it the, the, it's, it's active defense. The idea is that you strike along a, 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 the border, to, not so much to provoke, but to feel them out, to feel them out. You strike where you're prepared, where you feel you have the superiority on the ground, and then this somehow would dissuade the Soviets. They would realize, oh, oh my goodness, the Chinese are so prepared, we, we better not mess with them. So this is what happened in March 1969 on this island along um, the Sino-Soviet Sino border, uh, the island of Jambaudau, or Damansk, as it was called in, in, in Russian. Uh, the, the Russians actually controlled the island, uh, but they patrolled it every, every so often. And um, uh, on that morning, they went down to patrol the island. But the previous night, the Chinese actually um, infiltrated the island and buried themselves in the snow. And when the Russians were on the island, they basically massacred uh, the Russian water guards. And then what happened was the Russians retaliated in force. And there was a serious, serious clash that, that highlighted the prospect of a nuclear war between the, the two superpowers, China, or rather between the two powers, the Soviet Union and China. And China, of course, also had nuclear weapons. But the Soviets, uh, is seemingly at one point, uh, floated this idea of striking against their nuclear weapons, uh, pre carrying out a preemptive nuclear strike. I think they were not serious about it. I don't think they were serious. They were floating this idea ideas and even sounding out the Americans, uh, which is how Kissinger uh, realized that the Americans, or uh, according to his memoirs anyway, realized that the Americans have to do something and to engage with China. But I don't think the Soviets really seriously contemplated the idea of a preemptive nuclear strike on China. In, indeed, until now, we have not really had any archival evidence to support this allegation. After all of this, Nixon ends up visiting China in 1972, doesn't he? What happens? Well, so Nixon effectively exploited the Sino-Soviet rift. Um, he, he had uh, early on, indeed, I and mean, before his election in 1967 already, published uh, an article in which he claimed that you could not, you know, the United States could not allow China to remain in angry isolation. Then the events on the Sino-Soviet border and the Sino-Soviet clash uh, further confirmed uh, for him the necessity of engaging with China uh, as, a, as a part of this uh, strategic conception of triangular diplomacy. Uh, Nixon, of course, would uh, resent this. If he were alive, he would say this. He wasn't he wasn't just playing the China card against the Soviet Union, or he had other strategic ideas. He needed to leave Vietnam, for example, or he just wanted to engage China on its own terms, which is, which is you know, China was a big power, so therefore the United States needed to have a good relationship with it, irrespective of what happened with the Soviet Union or, uh, you know, this whole idea of triangular diplomacy. But I think there was a tactical side to this. There was a tactical side in engaging with the Chinese uh, to play them against the Soviet Union. But there was also a tactical side uh, for the Chinese, for uh, Mao Zedong, who wanted to engage with the Americans in order to 
uh, as he allegedly put it to his um, uh, uh, doctor, Litra's way, uh, Mao said, well, we will, we will uh, uh, reach out to the far barbarians to control the close barbarians. Mao dies in 1976, leaving behind a cult following. What happens to the People's Republic of China and the relationship between the two countries after his death? Well, after a brief power struggle, eventually Deng Xiaoping emerges as Mao's successor. That happens by 1978. Uh, one of the first things that, that Deng Xiaoping does is establishes a diplomatic relationship with the United States. Uh, he travels to Washington in uh, uh, January 1979, uh, embraces Carter, as it were, and, uh, uh, you know, tours the United States, goes to Texas and to the Boeing factory and et cetera, et cetera, you know, shops for technology. Dunn saw the United States as a source of much needed technology and investments for China's modernization. At the same time, he continued to see the Soviet Union as a very threatening hegemonic power in the North. So Dunn, in at first, had no intention of normalizing relationship with the Soviet Union. Indeed, as he was leaving uh, the United States after his visit in 1979, he is alleged to have told his advisors, he said, you know, in history, all those countries that went with the United States, uh, United States ended up being prosperous, uh, and those that went with the Soviet Union ended up being poor. So we will go with the United States. So this was alignment uh, between uh, between still effectively Maoist China, you know, communist China, and the United States. That 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 done saw as a, as a very much part of you know Chinese strategic push for modernization and to prove China's worth to the United States he even launched a war against a communist country that is to say Vietnam which happened uh, just shortly after he came back from the United States now there are of course various uh, other reasons for China's involvement in that war against Vietnam but I think one big part of, the, of, of China's um, uh, attack on Vietnam was to show to the United States that China was a worthy partner in opposition to uh, you know the communists despite the fact that China itself was ostensibly communist however uh, the direction changed by early 1980s and here we're already in the Reagan administration I think the problem from Don's perspective was that America America proved much less of uh, uh, the kind of partner that Dunk wanted to see uh, in America. Um, he, he was shopping for a relationship of equals, and instead he felt like he was being played by the Americans, and he also resented the fact that the Reagan administration denied a much-needed technologies. Um, Dunk said that this was a case of you know, the United States uh, it was a case of loud thunder, but few raindrops. Uh, the United States was talking about helping China, but in reality wasn't, and also was, help, was, was selling weapons to Taiwan. So because of all of those things, uh, Dan became increasingly frustrated with the United States and from 1982 onwards uh, started to shift in his position. And that new position, it was so-called independent foreign policy that was proclaimed in September 1982, eventually allowed China to normalize relations with the Soviet Union. So you've, met, you've brought us into the 1980s now um, with more conflicts around the world. Um, tell us how this continues to impact the narrative between um, the Soviet Union and China? Well, it's, it's interesting to, to look at this story. It's a story not, not so many people know about, but basically the Soviet Union, Soviet leadership found itself besieged by the early 80s. Um, there was tension in the superpower relationship. Uh, there was uh, a crisis over SS-20s and Pershings in Europe. Um, there was uh, the uh, shutdown of Korean airliner uh, in September 1983. So the relationship between Moscow and Washington were, was extremely, extremely tense. And, uh, uh, of course, because partly because of the invasion of Afghanistan, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the Soviets were also subjected to economic sanctions from the West. Um, you know, Poland was another reason for that, actually, because of the events in Poland and the proclamation of the martial law. So the Soviets felt like they were on the defensive. And as a part of that, they were looking around 
to change their strategy and improving relations with China seemed like a reasonable idea to them. So this is the source on the Soviet side. This is the source of the normalization. Yeah, uh, the, the Soviets realized that when the relationship with the West was so tense, they could perhaps looked forward to better relationship, pragmatic relations with China. The Chinese didn't look so bad after all. Uh, and I think Deng Xiaoping was also reciprocating that. He also realized that over-reliance on the United States did not help him, so he could ostensibly improve relations with the Soviet Union, perhaps even just to get leverage in his relationship with the United States. Um, so both sides were realizing that, and that is how you have this process of normalization that ends with Gorbachev's visit to Beijing in uh, May 1989, uh, when he meets with Deng Xiaoping, and Deng Xiaoping basically tells him, um, uh, we will close the past and open the future. And here's an interesting thing, something else that Deng Xiaoping told Gorbachev. He said, you know, in the past, we have accused the Soviet Union of all kinds of ideological sins, that you have betrayed Marxism, that you've done this and that, that you were not revolutionary enough. All of that, much of that, Deng Xiaoping told Gorbachev, were empty words, you know, in Chinese. It was, em it was empty, it was just empty words. The real reason for the conflict, Deng told Gorbachev, was that you looked down on us and did not consider us for an equal power. Well, now Gorbachev was willing to recognize China for the equal power that it was indeed uh, in his conversation with the Chinese Prime Minister Li Peng. Uh, at, at that time, actually, Lipan was not prime minister, he was deputy prime minister. He visited Moscow, uh, and, and uh, Gorbachev told Lipan, he said, you know, uh, we want to improve relations with China. And Lipan said, well, if you do, we cannot have to return to the former alliance where China was the younger brother. And Gorbachev said, that's fine. We have so many problems of our own. We don't need any younger brothers. So I think <laughs> Gorbachev, Gorbachev's understanding of this and his willing to treat China as an equal was a major reason why the Soviets and the Chinese were able to mend fences in 1989. So with the fall of the Soviet Union, how does this affect the People's Republic of China? Uh, the Chinese were deeply disturbed by the events in uh, the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe, indeed from the late 1980s. They were concerned that um, the Americans were pursuing their policy of peaceful evolution, subverting communist regimes, and uh, you know, doing that in Eastern Europe, ultimately in the Soviet Union. Um, they, they had also considered political reform in the 1980s, um, but Deng Xiaoping ultimately decided that economics is what really mattered. He was very pragmatic when it came to this matter. Yeah, he, he wanted to preserve the political monopoly of the Chinese Communist Party. He wanted to reform the economy, and he certainly was not willing to engage in the kind of political exper experiments that Gorbachev carried out in, um, in, in the Soviet Union, where he allowed uh, much greater openness and eventually elections and democratization. Uh, Deng Xiaoping felt that this would undermine, this kind of measures would undermine Chinese, um, uh, the, the monopoly of the Chinese Communist Party. He wasn't willing to go that, in, in that direction. Um, and then, of course, you had, you know, there was the uh, uh, massacre of students in Tiananmen Square on June 4th, 1989, which is where uh, the Soviet and the Chinese path really diverged. Uh, Gorbachev continued to press with democratization and openness, which led to, by December 1991 to Soviet collapse. The Chinese tried to consolidate their political control of the country just as they Pursued, continue to pursue economic reforms in the 1990s. What happened then later was that the, that Russia descended into chaos. There was uh, economic uh, meltdown, rise in crime, and uh, disillusionment. Uh, and of course, polit you know, political scene was extremely unstable in Russia. I remember that very well because I was in Russia at that time and just. Just, just what it was like living through those years. Uh, but you know, people people talk about the 1990s and what the, they meant for Russia uh, because there's this. Sometimes there's this argument that's made that um, that is essentially the 90s undermined the Russians' faith in democracy. I think there's something to this argument when people associate democracy with poverty and and uh, uh, you know economic meltdown and whatnot. 
perhaps they will look for something else. And so that leads us directly to Putin and the authoritarian regime that he imposed on Russia in 2000. In the meantime, the Chinese, of course, followed their own their own uh, road. They, uh, you know, Deng Xiaoping called it. Um, uh, what's what's the what's the English for that? Um, uh, maintaining, uh, hiding your capabilities, as it were, just working hard and hiding your capabilities. And this is what the Chinese did in, did in the 1990s. And then we come to a much more assertive and economically power, powerful China of today. But what's interesting today is that, is that China and Russia are, you know, they seem to be uh, on the same wavelength, as it were. Although in many ways, their relationship has been inversed. And so, whereas in the 1950s, it was China that was the younger brother today, it seems like Russia is the younger brother of this relationship. But one thing that the Chinese have learned from the troubled history of the Sino-Soviet relationship is that they should not press their advantage. At least they have not pressed it too hard so far uh, and, and, and uh, have not rubbed it in in Russia's face as in, okay, you're the younger brother now and you know, follow what we say. This is what Khrushchev was doing in the 1950s. The Chinese have not done it so far. If they try doing this, I think they will discover the limits of the uh, uh, Sino-Russian relationship and they will discover that the Russians will feel considerable resentment about their position. Uh, of inequality. Thank you so much for coming on, globalising our view, if you like, and giving us a, a really succinct and uh, erudite coverage of the relationship between China and the Soviet Union for like 50 years. I don't know how you keep all of that in your head. It's amazing. Well, you know, I was looking. I was looking at the time. I was. Uh, I just. I just. <laughs> I could go on forever because, of course, you know, those are just. I just scratched the surface here. But uh, I know that you. You wanted to keep it uh, within. What did you say? Forty. Forty minutes. So. Yeah. Yeah. So. So hopefully. Hopefully. I think I even exceeded slightly. But. Uh, well, people will not mind. I was going <laughs> to no. say our listeners are not going to mind because that was excellent. Okay. Well, thanks for yeah. Thanks for calling me up. Join us tomorrow when the amazing Jim Al-Khalili will be joining us to talk all about Pathfinders. This is a book he did about the golden age of Islamic slash Arabic science. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. <laughs> 